Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, and those who know better to A Catalepsis, the podcast where we take the name of our favorite story, as well as the story itself, and tear it into itty bitty tiny little pieces, because that's apparently how we enjoy our content. <laughs> um, my name is Thomas, uh, that was Sarah, and we're going to be talking about the web serial Catalepsis today. Yes, and we will cover many topics, magic, mystery, science, the existential dread of late-stage capitalism, and girls. All this and more. Sarah's especially excited about the girls. <laughs> Look, um, I am a simple woman with simple tastes. <laughs> I'm not judging you. Okay, actually, I am judging you, but you know what? Well, Always. not that way, but... <laughs> with love, I'm sure. With love. Anyways, we're talking about the web serial Catalepsis, which is, for those of you who don't know an eldritch horror story, which could also be argued to be a work of queer literature and social commentary. And... I'd argue it straddles the line between the three. Oh yeah, definitely. But anyways, if you're familiar with Catalepsis, feel free to listen along with us as we go through uh, different chapters. Uh, you don't have to read the chapters as uh, we go. We're going to be doing summaries. And if somehow mm -hmm. this is your introduction to Catalepsis, feel free to read along with us. though. Be aware that we are going to get into some spoilery territory as we go. <laughs> we'll be trying to keeping our comment to try to keep our commentary mostly chronological and limited to the chapter in question, but we will be mentioning things that occur future in at future points in the story as they pertain to events that are currently playing out. Things like pointing out foreshadowing, early um, the er, early, early manifestations of themes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, especially especially when it comes to character growth. Uh, a number of the characters have some reveals about their inner lives that happen later in the story, and we're not going to shy away from talking about those inner lives before we actually get there. <laughs> partly because it enriches the discussion, and also partly because the both of us have read far ahead of the beginning at this point, and just the mere thought of trying to keep all of that self-contained gave both of us aneurysms. I would explode if we couldn't talk about Rain's inner life before we got to arc freaking 11. <laughs> um, Patience. <laughs> anyways, though, on that note, I figure we should introduce ourselves. My name is Thomas, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, pronouns are he, him. I think I first got into Catalepsis a while back when somebody on the Practical Guide to Evil Discord introduced me to it, and... I started reading it, not really sure what I should expect, and fell in love. Um, I've got something of a mathematical background related to the weird math stuff that happens in this story, and that was very exciting. But more important was the characters. Um, we're definitely going to be talking about this more as this uh, podcast goes on, but... Uh, I'm pretty similar to the character Rain in a lot of ways. And this story wrote her perspective in a way I've never really seen anywhere else. And it drew me in. Oh yeah, also I'm queer as folk, so like, I kind of got to love the story just based on those grounds. <laughs> Sarah? And that's a fair enough segue into my own perspective. <laughs> my name is Sarah. Um, pronouns are she, her. I'm a mostly ace trans lesbian with a background mm -hmm. in um, literature analysis in my undergrad, which I then transitioned heh, into a um, into a master's degree in social work, which I'm currently partway through completing. 
And <laughs> I'm going to be approaching catalepsis mostly through the lens of queer literature, as well as a background within um, the mental health profession. I should note before I get on any tangents that while I am in training to receive a master's degree for social work, I'm not yet accredited or had my license or technically had any real field work. So try to take my observations mostly as just a person who's really interested in this sort of thing rather than as any kind of official anything else. <laughs> and I should also note that... I just know that I'm forgetting something, something very relevant. Oh, I'm sure we're forgetting a ton of things. Um, no, it's fine. <laughs> um, oh, yes. Um, the way that I got into catalepsis was by oh. this guy introducing me. <laughs> of course. And then uh, I was going through a rough patch uh, with my grad degree at the time. Uh, so I got pulled away uh, from it. And she kept on reading it and bugged me for like a year straight to start picking it back up again. <laughs> And and, I was right. Yes, you were. Obviously, we're here now. <laughs> I think we both really love the story and have had some extremely long conversations dissecting parts of it. And honestly, this podcast is half just an excuse to have a reason to get together and do that regularly. <laughs> And it's really interesting to read the story from the beginning again. Even within this first chapter, there's a lot to unpack here. Oh, yeah. Oh. Well, with that said, do we want to start in with just like, before we even get into the chapter, actually, let's just talk about the title of the story. Catalepsis. Yes. What does it mean? <laughs> well, you were the one who, who proposed breaking down the etymology, so why don't you go first? Okay, so... I'm sure there's at least somebody who knows uh, philosophy in this audience who could say a lot more about this than we could. But catalepsis is a catalepsis is part of a school of philosophy which believes that things are knowable. It is the act of knowing and synthesizing knowledge and bringing things together. The title of our podcast, Acatalepsis, is actually a contradictory school of philosophical thought, which dwells more on the unknown and what can't be known. And I, I think I thought it, it was an appropriate title because we don't necessarily know where the story is going, and we're going to be making a lot of guesses. And we're going to get things wrong. Yeah, and also I think there's a an lot. Yeah, also there's an element of subjectivity to any literature analysis where i think we are by necessity going to have to dwell in the realms of maybes and loose fuzzy territory where we can't necessarily pin down what something means because it's going to mean something different to everybody and i think that's an interesting to place to the price of writing nuance is ambiguity and that means that there are going to be at some points multiple different possible interpretations all of which are to some extent at least by the text equally valid and that's okay yeah and i think also one notable thing is because it's just the two of us on this podcast we're not going to get all of the possible different perspectives of the story and i think that's something we want to keep in mind as we go forward mm-hmm uh, with that said, you want to uh, pull apart the summary because it's a pretty dang good summary of uh, of uh, of catalepsis. You mean the one on the website? Yes. <laughs> okay, so let me just read it out for you guys. 
For Heather Morrell, nightmares and hallucinations lurk around every corner, relics of schizophrenia and childhood bereavement, until she meets Rain and Evelyn, that is, self-proclaimed bodyguard and bad-tempered magician, and learns she's not insane at all. The spirits and monsters she sees are all too real. The god thing in her nightmares is teaching her how to surpass human limits, and her twin sister, who supposedly never existed, could still be alive, somewhere outside, beyond the, the walls of reality. Heather plunges into a world of eldritch magic and fanatic cultists, trying to stay alive, stay sane, and deal with her own blossoming attraction to dangerous women. But being in the know isn't all terror and danger. Sometimes the monster wears nice dresses and sticks around for afternoon tea. Sometimes you find you have more in common with them than you think. Perhaps this is Heather's chance to be something more than the defeated husk she's grown up as, to find real friendship and meaning among things like herself. And, perhaps out there in the rim of the possible to bring her twin sister back from the dead. So what I really like about this is that it tells us so much about where Heather is going, but it doesn't tell her at all about, tell us rather at all about what she's like right now, really. Like the, the portrait that we get as we'll, as we'll go into in the first chapter of who Heather is, is much different from the summary implies because it gives us somewhere, somewhat of an arc to judge her on immediately. Well, that's huh. a harsh, but yes. No, I get where you're going with that. Um, it's, it's some, yeah, it's something I think a good summary does, which is not focusing too much on the plot hook and focusing more on where the plot hook is going to take us. Because ultimately, it's not a very good summary if somebody can get the same thing out of it just by reading the first few paragraphs. Absolutely. But also, one thing I really like about it is in every paragraph in this summary, it ties into the interpersonal. We open the first paragraph with discussions of childhood bereavement. We immediately move into the people she's going to meet, the childhood sister she wants to rescue. And even the third paragraph, which focuses the most on the monstrous and the scary and the, the alien it's still ultimately all about meeting the monsters and maybe they're more than you think yeah it constantly undercuts your expectations with oh well maybe she's insane and just has hallucinations no there's something more there maybe these people are going to help defeat the monsters wait, there's more to the monsters as well. It's constantly readjusting your expectations even as you read further within the summary alone, which is a nod to what the story as a whole does with these subjects. That's a good point. Yeah, I hadn't even considered that. Yeah, in the very first uh, sentence, it's not entirely clear. Hmm. No, actually, no, right in the second paragraph, it says that the monsters she sees are all too real. I don't think we're really intended to dwell on her belief of what's real or what's not too no, seriously in summary. I, no, I definitely not, but I would argue that within the time scale of the story itself, the amount of time that Heather spends believing that she's genuinely insane is also comparatively tiny, but that is a very mm. real part of her character. It's a fair enough point. I don't think we're meant to dwell on it, but it is, again, the place that she starts from. Right, right. Well, on that note, we want to dive into the first chapter? Sure.
<laughs> so for the first chapter, um, the, basically what happens is that Heather wakes up feeling miserable from the nightmares that have been assaulting her for weeks at this point. She makes her way to the local cafe, ignoring the horrific hallucinations along the way. She sees a pretty girl inside that smiles at her before everything gets to be just too much and she tries to vomit in the bathroom. The pretty girl follows her in and they talk. The girl, Rain, actually believes her, which Heatherly really doesn't know what to do with. We'll get into that. And after some explanation, Rain successfully goes outside and banishes one of the monsters that Heather sees, which, to, to put it lightly, freaks her out. She walks Heather home, and that leaves Heather to wonder what comes next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're obviously glossing over some things, but that's <laughs> essentially the arc we're taking through. Mm-hmm. Well, with that said, want to dive into the first sentence with me? Absolutely. All right. So this chapter opens up with, on the day I met Rain, the first thing I did was jerk awake in bed and vomit nightmares into my lap. And I may be a little bit too much of a fan of dissecting first sentences or paragraphs of stories, but this, I think, is an especially good one. Because we don't see Rain for quite a while uh, in this chapter. But the story opens with her anyways. On the day I met Rain. And that can tell you something about what the story is about. Catalepsis is ultimately about these interpersonal connections. It wants to emphasize Rain. She's not just backdrop in a story about the otherworldly and the eldritch. She is the most important thing in the first sentence. Absolutely. Ultimately, it's it's a story about people, which itself is quite rare in this genre. You know, you're right about that. I hadn't really considered, but yeah, eldritch horror doesn't talk about people except as vehicles for the horror very often, does it? Mm-hmm. Well, with that in mind, there's other good stuff about the first uh, sentence too, which is the part where it says vomit nightmares into my lap. When I'd, I'd already gone into this chapter the first time having read the summary, and so my first thought was, is she literally vomiting nightmares into her lap? Is she vomiting literal mm-hmm. horrors and monstrosities into her lap? But then we immediately seg into the next sentence where it says, that's not quite accurate. If I could purge the nightmares like a bad meal, then my life would be a lot easier. And it goes, oh, okay, so it's not actual literal nightmares. And then in the next sentence, we immediately seg back into this horrifically evocative language about the great eye that's ramming her head full of monstrous, horrible information. And you kind of slip back to, wait, no, actually, was she actually vomiting nightmares in her lap? Was this actually more literal? And I really like that ambiguity as well, because Heather goes out of her way to explain, especially in this first chapter, that her perspective is necessarily flawed. So even as she says, that's not quite accurate, ironically, that's that's both true and not in the sense that like she's acknowledging her own perspective is flawed, but also it might be accurate and she wouldn't know. Yeah. And I think that's part of what the first chapter of Catalepsis does very well. It pulls you into this headspace where 
you're uncertain what is real and what is not in the same way Heather is. Um, we might know, because the summary told us and our expectations of the genre told us this, that a lot of what happens in catalepsis is real, but it's unclear. For a definition of reality. Exactly. It's unclear what what is real and to what extent it's real. Are these just nightmares? Is she physically being pulled into another reality while she sleeps? Is this a metaphor for something? It's not clear to the reader and it's not clear to her. And what I also like, which we'll get into later, is that the all, the underlying question to that that I would pose is <laughs> is there a difference in this in the sense of if she's pulled into another reality in her dreams or not does that change the trauma that she goes through regardless even if it isn't quote unquote real it's real to her and to a yeah. certain extent that's what actually matters yeah and that gets pulled into another thing that's in the early paragraphs uh, where it says the nightmares had lashed at me for two weeks. Last night was a new record of unbroken pain. One thing the very beginning of the story does is it does an incredibly good job of making it clear how much pain Heather is in, how much she's suffering from this. And that's something I can relate to a lot. Uh, actually, when I was around her age in college, I had similarly bad problems with nightmares. Like, um, not getting significant amounts of sleep for two weeks straight kinds of nightmares. Uh, have a few months where I don't have clear memories because my brain wasn't functioning well enough to form them kind of nightmares. And it's one of the first things that drew me into this story. It felt like it understood that experience. Sure. I also really like how it establishes two diametrically opposed, at least for the most part, um, concepts immediately. That is of horror and routine. The horror mm. we already covered, this evocative imagery, this really harsh descriptors of the bile and the pain, the dry heaving, the nightmares that had lashed at me for two weeks. That's all pretty clear. But then mm. the other thing is, even from the first sentence, the matter-of-fact way that that this imagery comes out that sh that she jerked awake in bed and vomited nightmares into my lap then almost as if catching herself says no that's not quite accurate i just dry heaved because she knows what that feels like because she's been experiencing this for two weeks and even that is just a new record it's not inherently uncommon and to to know that gives us two things one it gives us a time frame for how long that this has been happening but two, it establishes that even though she has been, she is well known and well acquainted with this type of pain, it has not gotten any easier to comprehend or to manage. That's very yeah. uncommon, both in terms of trauma and in terms of chronic pain. Oh, in ter you mean in terms of how those are represented in media? Exactly. Yeah. I was also going to say there's... There's an element of eldritch horror here where the protagonist tries to deal with the otherworldly by simply blocking it out, by not acknowledging it. And it's a frequent theme that that is a failure mode. Um, trying to simply drown stuff out with routine and not pay attention to it is always a failure mode in uh, eldritch horror. 
But there's also the elements of queer literature and social commentary works in here, which is where queer literature works very often have staying in routine as a way to establish the feeling of being in the closet. And that's not, that's a bad thing in a very different way in queer literature than it is in eldritch horror. And when it comes to social commentary, there's, there tends to be a theme of establishing that this is untenable, something must change, again, in a very different way than eldritch horror does it. And I think it's going to be interesting to keep in mind as the story goes forward to what extent it's pulling on those three different genres to establish the meaning of the routine Heather starts with. Absolutely. And speaking of the queer lit angle, there is a bit in the very next paragraph that I thought actually mm-hmm. was an early indication of those themes. Oh? Um, in The Endless Dark Pain, The Watchers, and The Great Eye, which had crammed my head full to bursting with things I didn't want to know, night after night, until I'd crawled my way through the bedsheets and back into the sick prison of my nausea-wracked body. So, first of all, this is the first time that we see mention of The Great Eye, which we'll come back to. That's just not the, the main point that I'm trying to make here, but I did want to note that. But again, we're given these really intense descriptors of, of Eldritch Horror Nightmares, but then this is also the first time that Heather's body is openly related to as a prison right next to all of this imagery of the, the other. And I thought that was oh. a really fascinating choice of words this early on. Oh, so you mean using it as, well, I guess, a trans metaphor in possibly uh, in the queer sense, but also possibly the transhumanist sense or just the... Exactly. Not, hmm. I mean, like the trans metaphor is fairly obvious, but even beyond that, just the idea of this this thing that I'm, that I'm confined in, that I feel that something hmm. is wrong with maybe who I am, with how I present myself, with how I act, with how I look, but I don't know what it is, but I know that it is confining me. Huh. You don't even have to be trans to appreciate that going to be honest i don't have to be trans to appreciate it but i don't think i'd have noticed it as intently if you hadn't pointed it out fair enough no no it's thank you Mm -hmm. um so uh moving on from that right after that we get uh a little line where heather talks about mumbling poetry a few lines of coleridge uh to drown out the eye which isn't strictly relevant to what comes after, but I think it's just an example of good writing. Um, It can be very hard to pack everything you want to say about a character in the first few paragraphs of a story and to establish all the little character details. Um, Hungry, the author of Catalepsis, does a really good job here of sneaking that in into what's a fairly packed and crammed introduction. Yeah, I would agree. There are also some um, some other little tidbits of Heather's um, literature background, which we'll point out as we go on. But mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. It's really nice to see that reflected not just in the literal dialogue, but mm-hmm. also in the, in the diction and the descriptors that Heather herself uses, that you can see that she, she has a lit background and that relates to how she sees the world. Oh, yeah. 
it even goes out of its way to recite a bit of the poetry itself and talk about it as the rapture of the Arctic. It's it's clear right at the beginning, even when Heather's suffering all this, that she loves her literature. Absolutely. Unfortunately, right after that, Heather goes straight back into suffering. And there is paragraph after paragraph of just exquisitely written bodily misery until we get to a part which I think is very interesting, where she said, I finally accepted that I was suffering the worst schizophrenic relapse of my life. Which, so this is something I wanted to bounce off you, but when I first read this story, my first impression was, wait a moment, nightmares aren't, that's not, that's not a schizophrenic symptom, at least what we have been shown so far doesn't appear to be a schizophrenic symptom, right? Agreed. So it's interesting because, honestly, I'm not sure where I'm going with this. I might want to cut this later, but I think, meh, actually, yeah, let's cut that. I have no idea where I was going with honestly, that. Honestly, <laughs> I, I, I do have somewhere to go with that. Oh, yeah, shoot, go is... on. Which is mainly that it's interesting that we see that she's she's immediately relating this to a schizophrenic relapse, right? And mm-hmm. like you said, we haven't actually seen any symptoms of that. Which to me, in since we're 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 um, what's the word? We're within the first person, right? We're occupying Heather's thoughts. We're in limited um, first person, non omniscient. Right. Which to me means she may already be seen creatures and hallucinations outside and she is simply not acknowledging them even in the narrative right now oh yeah that's an interesting way to go about it let's come back to that when she actually does see the creatures properly um yes before we get to the creatures though because we are literally just about to get to them there's a part where she goes back to and uh, mentions rain again which i find fascinating where she says Rain was about to take away my safety blanket. If I'd known, would I have gone out that morning? For rain, probably yes. And I think this is a very well-written bit, because it's got to be difficult to go through all of this lavishly detailed description of what Heather's experiencing in the moment and still find opportunities to seed the interpersonal relationships she hasn't gone to yet. But this... I think is important. It is worth breaking the narration to talk about the fact that Heather cares about this woman, who we are only really hearing about so far, and that all of this suffering, which is apparently going to, about to be made worse by having the safety blanket taken away, is worth it for the sake of another person. It's a really good point. I actually wanted to focus on that choice of words, the safety blanket. Mm. In the very in the paragraph preceding this one, we see crazy was a safety blanket word for me. It defined a neat boundary in which I could exist without screaming at the walls or talking to people who weren't there. A safe zone to keep me from being locked in a padded cell. I'm not fond of the word insane because it implies that sane is an objective value. Crazy has no opposite. Rain was about to take away my safety blanket. And I wanted to point out that mm. for someone who has self-admitted to have be suffering through the worst schizophrenic relapse of her life, she is 
has a remarkable amount of self-insight for a for anyone, never mind somebody with this diagnosis, to not only be able to categorically look through the the labels and their subtle implications on your mind state, on how other people see you, on how you see yourself, but also to admit that even your use of that label is on, in some level a comfort mechanism, even if she hasn't like necessarily identified why that is, is really notable. Honestly, I think having gone through pretty similar stuff myself, I think that's a I think this is one of those cases where this is more accurate to life than the typical representations that this stuff we get is. People, obviously there are exceptions among people who have delusions to the point where they can't interact with reality well. But I think a lot of people who get labeled crazy because they have because they have mental illnesses which affect their quality of life and their experience of suffering and their interactions with the world, I think you necessarily have to end up with a good self-concept of your mental illness, or else it just does drive you mad. You, you spend enough time in your head and you just have to come to terms with what's up there, or it'll fuck you up. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, so where were we going next from there? Um, all right, we finally get to the actual hallucinations. You want to take us away with hallucinations they are. <laughs> yeah, um, honestly, I'm not sure. Uh, they're the kind of things you have to read for yourself in the context of the story, but Hungary does an excellent job describing the visceral physicality of these things which Heather is seeing. They really concoct some horrifying visual images. <laughs> it's honestly almost, in some ways, one of the unfortunate parts of the story because it is so impossible to do it justice that whenever I try to describe the story to another person who may be interested, I end up just saying, you need to read it. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Um, that's on point. But anyways, while those are pulled in there, we also get this very grounded physical horror of what it is like to be inside Heather's body. Um, one line I really wanted to pull out was where she says, I spat tainted saliva into the sink over and over again until I felt a little less defiled. That's very specific language. The language of being tainted and defiled in the context of the taste of stomach acid and blood in her mouth and dried blood on her face, it puts you in her body where it is a miserable place to be. And it also kind of provides this contract to this very contrast to this very esoteric horror outside her body. Outside of her is madness and these terrifying hallucinations. Inside is this tainted, awful body, which is just pain. It's a hell of an introduction to the story. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, they're reflections of one another. And then, as if to drive the point home, we see Heather looking at her actual reflection. Even when clean, I didn't relish the sight of myself in the mirror. My eyes ringed with dark exhaustion. And then it goes even further with the alliteration Mm -hmm. to really drive the point home. Sallow and slack and sick. 
that is like chef's kiss. That's beautiful. Yeah. You could also put a pin in that actually for the trans metaphor too, that, I mean, obviously she's got other reasons to not like her sight in the mirror right now, but you know, not appreciating herself in the mirror is very much the trans experience too. Yeah, I mean, not even just that. I mean, honestly, I would more tag this with just straight up depression. Yeah, that's a damn good point. <sighs> of course, if we're going back to uh, queer literature and how stories like that often start with being in the closet, depression's very much a side effect. <laughs> yep. It's, it, there's a reason mm. why the comorbidity between the two traits is so high. Yeah. Oh, well, and speaking of depression... If you, if you treat like an entire category of people as subhuman, then they feel really sad about it, but we don't have time to get into that. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Yeah, we really don't. I could be here all day if we did that. Um, anyways, speaking of depression and horrifying things, there's really interesting language which Heather uses when she says she's basically about to go out to eat. She calls it a last meal. And there's no way the language there is unintentional. It is deliberately using the language of an execution. It even and, segments it out into a separate sentence just to fully drive the point home. Yeah. And then it's notable that when she's thinking about this, she starts thinking about her parents for the first time. And the first thing she says about them is, my parents had never believed I'd make it through university. And I mean, which lens do you want to tackle that one for through? <laughs> I mean, there are so many, I almost can't choose. Just like, just from the, from the pure, like, crushing disappointment. Um, mm -hmm. And the fact that she immediately follows that with, and here I was about to throw in the towel. Yeah. About to prove them right. Yeah. And first of all, the queer literature angle, about to prove them, uh, like, right by failing in one's first explorations into the larger world. Pretty common thing with queer literature, too. And there's also, frankly, an element of Eldritch Horror here, although this is... I might almost say this is common to fantasy in general. Main characters are typically not allowed to have solid familial supports in these stories. They have to go it alone. And I think we should... It's going to be fascinating to talk in future episodes about how Catalypsis subverts this, but Heather's initial relationship with her parents is very much this. She's talking about throwing in the towel to going back to her parents, and she's not talking about it as a return to a safe place where she feels comforted and can recover from this. She's talking about it as failure. And what I want to point out is that it would be a lot easier, or maybe a lot more straightforward, if her parents were just not supportive at all, if they were homophobic, if they um, if they mm -hmm. just thought she was, you know, raving mad or whatever. But you can tell even in like, I'm not trying mm -hmm. to say that Heather's parents were perfect or the support that she needed because they definitely weren't. Although, to be fair, I don't think they quite cover in the parent handbook. Help your child has been abducted by alien nightmares. Um, <laughs> but regardless of that slight side digression, they're clearly in this from a, from a place of concern. Like, mm -hmm. after she gets hospitalized, their first thought is to take her to a psychiatrist because they know that something is wrong with their daughter and that she's distressed, but they don't know why. Right. These are parents that are trying their best to support their daughter. It's just that the kind of support that she needs is something that they are fundamentally unable to provide. 
And I like that disconnect. The idea that the difference between parents who are supportive and parents who aren't supportive isn't just parents who care and parents who don't, but parents who care in the right way. That's a good point. And that, honestly, I can tie that back into both the queer lit angle and my own experiences there, where um, uh, when I first came out to my mom as bisexual, she was always accepting. Um, my mom is a psychologist, and uh, to put things in perspective, a lot of her early psych work was uh, pro bono work with uh, AIDS patients. And this was back when the AIDS epidemic was in full swing and people didn't necessarily know how it was spread yet. So when I say that uh, I've got nothing but respect for my mom as an ally, I mean it. But also the framework through which my mom interacted with me on my bisexuality most often was concern. Exactly this kind of concern. It was fear that if I dated a man that I was going to get hurt or that I would be ostracized. And she expressed her concern often in kind of trying to steer me towards, well, I mean, you can date a woman, so why don't you want to do that? And finally having the conversation with my mom about, hey, this is hurting more than it's helping and getting her to listen to that was such a weight off my shoulders. And it was Fantastic. Led to us having a much better relationship about this stuff. But it's it hard because you yeah. feel like you don't have the, like your parent is supportive. They are trying. So mm -hmm. on some level, you feel like you don't have the, the right to ask for anything more because the only models you have is the mm. parent who doesn't care and the parent who does. So if your parent <laughs> obviously cares in some capacity, that must mean they're doing the good thing. Yeah. I feel like that might be a little bit more your experience than mine. I, I would pull mine back a little bit more towards, like, I kind of knew I wanted to ask for better, but I didn't know how to have that conversation yet at that point. But I think there's this element, which Catalypsis is bringing up very well here, which is this experience of being in a situation where you are, where your parents are concerned for you and trying to care for you. But what you need isn't that. What you need is support in going out there and doing it in living your life. And that's what Heather doesn't have at this point in the story. Yeah, I'd, I'd say my experience mirrors that as well. Um, when mm -hmm. I first came out to my mom, um, her response, well, I didn't know I was coming out at the time. It's <laughs> weird. But when I first attempted to say something like, hey, um, I think that my gender doesn't fit my body and I'm scared, was... <laughs> Her, her response rather was, well, you can just be a feminine man if you want. And that mm. definitely is true, first of all, in case any mm. of you were wondering. And also more than that um, is a form mm. of support. She was absolutely right. And it's great that she was like willing to let me experiment, but that wasn't the kind of support that I needed. What mm. I needed to hear at that time was, hey, whatever you want to do, is okay and I'm gonna love you no matter what instead of pointing mm -hmm. to a specific intermediary and like I'm not meaning to disrespect my mom here she's fantastic and like mm -hmm. like almost as good of an ally as Thomas is the sole exception <laughs> being she doesn't actually work in the field um, <laughs> but like she's fantastic and she was mm -hmm. genuinely trying her best I don't blame her for it at all 
I'm just trying to use that as an example to point out that the difference between mm-hmm. between support and when and allyship and the type of support that you actually need can be unfortunately pretty vast sometimes. Yeah. And this is the kind of thing I would absolutely, when I first read the story, I wasn't thinking about it in this much detail, but looking back, I think this is part of how Catalepsis turns staples of eldritch horror into staples of queer literature. There is this isolation, but it is not the characteristic isolation we see in eldritch horror. It isn't, you are totally alone, the world is totally hostile. It is, the world's actually quite supportive in a way which isn't helping. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, what should we talk about next? Uh, Heather is going on to the diner to get food. Uh, should we talk about the diner itself, the terrifying nightmare outside the diner, or Rain, who she sees outside of it? Um, this is also the first time that we actually see any description of the town. Oh, shoot. I totally skipped over that. Yeah, let's talk about the town. Um, yeah, well, what's interesting, first of all, is that um, this is the first time I feel that we get enough um, diction other than like the words that she's been using to indicate that this is somewhere in England rather than like ah. the usual default American setting. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, at honestly, least what, um, what tipped mm-hmm. me off was saying Shadowford's student quarter. Hmm. Oh, yeah, I suppose that's accurate. Honestly, the name Shadowford itself uh, made me think of the UK long before I ever thought of the US, but... <laughs> Anyway, yes, there's some excellent description here about that immediately makes you think overcast, kind of trendy, kind of old uh, English town. But also but, sleepy. And not, it's, yes. it's, it's a little bit trendy, but also like you don't get the sense that there's a lot of people around. It's also 530 in the morning. Which, of course, Heather's purpose is just fine. Yeah, and it is 530 in the morning. <laughs> True. Um, anyways, shall we talk about the girl outside the cafe? I was going to say the hallucinations come first and there is a really interesting, um, what's it called? Um, I'm just, I'm just going to read this out because I, I know it's a lot, but it's like, the, the progression is really interesting. Mm-hmm. A hunched Hulk wreathed in black haze drooled molten saliva on a suburban corner rooted into the ground with questing barbs of naughty red flesh. I passed a tree half dead from the late autumn weather wrapped in a layer of pale worms thick as my arm. A cluster of naked, bone-white figures in a front garden turned to watch me as I passed, and none of them had faces. A white shape strode overhead, blotting out the early dawn sky, six pillar-like insect legs towering over the city. I heard a distant boom each time it took another step. So, there's a lot to do. But what I really Mm -hmm. found myself relating this to was the work of Junji Ito, which is Mm. basically a, who is a, um, a noted mangaka who works in the horror genre, more specifically cosmic horror. Um, and that he, he has noted that the way that he tries to find new subjects for his horror is that he takes something ordinary and looks at it backwards. And I, find my, I found myself doing that here. And that the first thing she sees is the thing immediately on the suburban corner, which makes sense. It's in her immediate vicinity, right? But then the thing is after that, are all things that are more ordinary and get progressively weirder. So we see a tree half dead from the late autumn weather, which is totally normal, which is only then wrapped in a layer of pale worms. We see these figures that at first look like they could, like they're on someone's front garden. They could be neighbors, except that they're bone white, naked, and have no face. Mm. And, the, and they all turn to look at her. 
And then it's only afterwards that we see the most obvious things, the giant shape that strode overhead who literally lets out like loud echoing booms whenever it takes a step. Like chronologically, you'd expect to our attention to be drawn to that first, but it isn't because it's almost as if like our perspective from the audience is slowly widening as Heather herself is allowing herself to acknowledge the things that are in front of her. Yeah, it's damn good writing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, which also I think makes it so interesting because we are going from some real deep horror territory here, right? Like that's just the one paragraph. It goes on beyond this, right? Mm-hmm. And then we see rain for the first time, and you would swear that the three paragraphs, that the I guess four paragraphs where Rain is introduced are from a totally different genre. Yep. It's a girl stood by the cafe peering into the front window. It talks about the rakish flash of her teeth as she smiles a little at Heather as if they're sharing some silent joke. There's a leather jacket sitting loose on her shoulders. It talks about her rich chestnut hair swept back loose and lazy from her forehead. It talks about how her smile cut right through Heather. Yay. <laughs> it's ridiculously gay, yeah. And then we're back into the horror with not the sort of girl who'd ever be interested in me. And I could imagine the disgusted look on her face when she realized what I was. Right before we transitioned back into talking about a terrifying scribble monster outside the cafe. Yeah, it's a remarkable shift. And what I also like is that it gives us a it gives us a glimpse into Heather's own mindset. Like mm-hmm. all the things that you talked about with her rich chestnut hair and the the leather jacket and everything and the rakish smile, that those are all yeah, they're obviously biased, but they are more like observations, right? Of of mm-hmm. who Rain is. The first time that Rain actually interacts with her, it's with the verb cut. Hmm which is like not the, it's something that like it cuts right through her as in like it goes much deeper than the surface level. And then what we find immediately is not the sort of girl who'd ever be interested in me. I knew I was clutching at straws, so alone and exhausted that even a hint of sympathetic human contact had me ready to beg like a dog. So even as she's acknowledging that these wants of hers are totally normal, totally human, like just the barest amount of sympathetic human interaction which we can already infer, like, from the whole, like, I don't have any friends, et cetera, et cetera, that she hasn't had for God knows how long, she then immediately relates back to base animalistic instincts. That's a lot. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting because the introduction of Rain is almost a reprieve. It shows what Heather could be without all of this. She could be having a meet-cute early on a dreary... Sheriford morning with this cute girl with the loose leather jacket. But it's not even that her hallucinations actually intervene with what happens next. There's no hallucination which strides between her and Rain, cutting off her line of sight. It is the thought of herself as a crazy girl. I am Mm -hmm. hurting. I am in pain. I am suffering. And therefore, she should be disgusted by me. It's a mindset that's very easy to get into when you're mentally unwell and you're in a lot of pain. But especially with the um the the probably PTSD induced depression that she has is making her yeah. cherry pick as well. 
Oh yeah. It's, it's not even just the disgust. It's like when immediately before that she's, it says she'd work out. I was crazy. I'd wither up and die under that smile. It's not that Heather's expression would really change. Mm-hmm. It's that the context would, it's no longer that she thinks that she's cute. It's now that she has pity and that's infinitely worse. Yeah. Now, I think actually there's something which comes next, which we should tie this right into. And it means we're going to have to skip over a couple things and come back to them later. But Heather goes into the diner, orders food, starts to eat, and begins to slip. Slip with a capital S, where the world around her starts to fade into something other and worse. And these are apparently these horrifying episodes where she spends hours in another awful world. And then rain interrupts her and the slip stops. And this is, I think, the very interesting part because it ties back into this introduction of rain. Heather sees rain and immediately thinks of herself as someone rain would be disgusted by. So how does rain actually interact with her? He undermines her expectations at almost every turn, often directly. Yeah. And it's nothing but unconditional care and love. Rain basically just straight up says, okay, you're not okay. And like, to the point where like, you can't even like ask for help or turn away help. So yeah, I'm going to hop over uh, the bathroom stall and get in there with you to try to help you. Right. Like she says, right. Executive decision time. (laughs) Yep. Um, And also it's very interesting where rain is Heather's trying to push away rain's help where she's like, she's like, I'm not, I don't need, I don't even know you. And she's barely functioning. Her nose is bleeding everywhere at this point. Um, The slip has fucked something up with her. And Rain just says, we can change that part easy enough. And she says, I saw you come here in here. And I thought, hey, that girl looks a bit messed up. Maybe she needs a hand. Maybe she needs help. And yeah, you are a bit messed up. Let's be honest. And then she just says, solidarity, you know, got to look out for each other. And then she does that. This is the first thing we ever actually see of Rain's actions in the story. She sees a girl who's hurting, and it doesn't bother her that Heather is messed up and gross and bleeding, and let's be honest, probably smells pretty terrible, right? Mm-hmm. Rain just immediately... is not an attractive morning. morning nope. <laughs> and immediately Rain does nothing but help her. She totally undermines Heather's expectations of the fact that she is miserable means she doesn't deserve care. I like the unspoken implication and the theme of like, oh, Heather is slipping into another dimension, although we don't know this yet. And the thing that brings her back is the care and presence of another person. Mm-hmm. It, this was one of those things where I think I didn't appreciate it nearly enough the first time I read this story, but... This is one of those parts where we're not getting an overlap of eldritch horror and queer literature and social commentary. We are getting a contrast between them. This is mm-hmm. the part where queer literature and social commentary come in and tell eldritch horror to fuck off. And that is a fascinating thing to do in the introductory chapter. Honestly, I'd even give it a little bit more credit than that. I don't think the eldritch horror has gone away because like she said, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I think you are pretty messed up, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, let's be honest. So, like, that part hasn't gone away, but the context has. It's still this, like, horrible, mm-hmm. awful thing that Heather has to face. And, like, let's let's be real. Like, Rain doesn't know what she's doing at all. <laughs> but she does say, you don't have to face it alone, though. And that makes exactly, all the difference. No, but that's the thing. 
that's exactly where it's telling Eldritch Horror to fuck off. Because the standard Eldritch Horror story, there's one of two outcomes for the way this goes, where it's Rain coming into the bathroom, bathroom to try to help her. One of them is, she slips anyway. The other is, she slips anyway and take, takes Rain with her, and that human kindness comes to be a terrible, horrific tragedy which ruins another person's life. <laughs> mm-hmm. That doesn't happen here, though. Everything is made better by Rain making the executive decision to help. Yeah, I guess I see your point. It's I definitely agree that it's like I very much like the take on the genre mm-hmm. that it's like that the, these things, these horrors, don't go away by the presence mm-hmm. of another person, but they are made better. Yeah, and speaking of that, this also ties into the social commentary aspect, which we've been kind of sidelining in favor of uh, queer lit and eldritch horror so far. But when Rain helps her, she asks, "Hey, are you hungover? You drugged?" You've been doing Molly, and none of that is said with judgment. There is no point at which Rain goes, "Okay, if you've been like, if you're drugged out, this is my uh, signal to back away and not help you anymore." She's asking for purely diagnostic purposes, and that's She's actually doing a better job, I suspect, than most of her doctors did. <laughs> yeah, although actually, that said, um, anybody in the audience, uh, if you are ever like on something and the paramedics are asking you about it tell them um please tell them yeah uh i know this for a fact in the u.s uh and i'm pretty sure it's true in most places but um if you tell the paramedics you've done drugs they're not going to out you to the cops they are literally just asking for diagnostic purposes so they can help you they are rain in the situation And also because if you have a heart attack from doing too much cocaine, they're going to have a very different treatment process from a heart attack from too much cholesterol. And the treatment for one in the other case will likely kill you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also if you're like out of it and disoriented because you've been doing heroin, um, they're going to want to give a, what is the word for the uh, anti-heroin drug? Narcan? I don't remember. I haven't done my narcotics unit in a while. Anyway, yeah, uh, be honest with, uh, with the paramedics about the drugs you've done. Not the cops, but the paramedics. <laughs> also, for the most part, that goes for therapists as well. Um, we're mm-hmm. mandated reporters for the most part, that, but that really only goes for if you are um, a known danger to yourself or to someone else. Right. And that's like physical harm or like, you know, verbally, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, a uh, uh, therapist is not going to turn you into the cops because you tell them that you are doing uh that you are addicted to a substance or you are using a substance uh if you tell them i am running out of money for a particular drug and i think i'm going to rob this bank for it yeah they do have to tell the cops but that's because you are telling them about a specific act of premeditated uh mediated uh premeditated harm (laughs) exactly that or if you're um if you're in a position of care over someone elderly and you're saying that like you're getting high on heroin every week or like not every week, but like every day, then that might be a cause for concern because they may believe you you may be inadvertently leading to the abuse or, or neglect of an elderly person under your care. But again, that's another specific kind of harm. Yeah. Um. Anyways, we got a little bit off topic there, didn't we? <laughs> um, anyways, Rain is doing a good job here. Um. Um. Also, it's kind of funny how uh we end up getting pulled in uh the knowledge that Heather is not straight here although i mean really if you've been 
I should say that most people should conscious. Most people should be aware that Heather isn't straight by now, but I'm aware that not everybody's gaydar is that good. <laughs> Anyways, at this point, Rain asks, "Are you pregnant?" And Heather says, "What? No, I'm not even straight." <laughs> um, no, it's not more. God bless. <laughs> She's trying her best. She is. Um, but that's the part which triggers her to tell Rain about what's going on. She says. I'm a crazy person and I was being sick because I thought it was being pulled into another dimension in a giant eyeball and this guy was teaching me impossible physics which makes me ill. And Rain is fascinated by this and also immediately segs into helping her more. I was going to say, the, the interesting bit is that Heather notes, even in her state, that mm-hmm. she looks up and sees raw, naked fascination. But even then, Rain doesn't go straight to interrogate her. She's like, mm-hmm. okay. I want to know more, but I can also recognize that this girl is not in a state to tell me more about this. You know what would help with that? Food. Yep. And she gets the food in Heather, and she talks to her about nothing to do with the crazy. She asks about the fact that she's a student. What's she learning? What's she studying? They go back and forth. Uh, Rain talks about how she's studying philosophy. Um, And more broadly, actually, like politics, philosophy, and economics, and how she doesn't fit the typical stereotype of that. And Heather talks about how she loves literature. And Rain expresses the fact that she's impressed by that, but she thinks that's a difficult thing to do. And that means something to Heather, and it's important to her. And they get dragged in this conversation, which is so far away from the madness that it's not even touching on it. Or, or back into the Roman I also, story. <laughs> I also wanted to note, we get a little bit of a hint of like Heather, again, like Heather's self-confidence issues here, which I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, let me see. It's all my nervous. Red- I know we're jumping around here, so I'm trying to make sure. Um, Rain narrowed her eyes and tapped two fingers on the tabletop. You don't seem very crazy to me. All my nervous reticence went out the window. What did I have to lose? She'd already mm-hmm. seen me covered in sick and shaking with terror. I couldn't go any lower. Appearances are always deceiving. I managed to pull myself up straighter. For example, I thought you looked like the sort of girl who would laugh at me for being sick and then try to sell me cannabis. So... <laughs> It's really interesting to both like see her complete lack of self-confidence, but then see how genuinely snarky and like almost in a reverse sort of way confident she can be when she feels like she has nothing left to lose. Ah, that's a good point. And then as soon as soon as she sees Rain react positively to that, like Rain laughed and ran through a, a hand through her hair, definitely not the sort of look I'm look I'm going for. Um and then she says, keep the jacket, it suits you. She no- she manages before her courage runs out. So even that mm. has like a limit where she she accidentally goes almost full reverse um, self-deprecation back into confidence again, then realizes that it's actually working, then panics and scoots backwards again. And then we get to the part where it's what making her afraid, where she talks about her mental illness to Rain or what she thinks is her mental illness. But, so this is something I really wanted to get your read on and have you go mm-hmm. off on, because it's absolutely the kind of thing I love hearing from you about. But Heather talks about this nightmarish experience she had of the eye, and then of not being able to trust herself afterwards, where she and her twin sister, we are told, got abducted by this thing. And then she came back, and not only was her twin sister gone, but had never existed. There was no sign she ever had. It was all in her head. <laughs> and yeah. we're, we're, we're pretty clearly getting the impression that's not the case, actually. That um, mm-hmm. her twin sister, Maisie, 
really existed. Um, but Heather doesn't believe that right now. Heather believes she's been schizophrenic this whole time. She believes everything is made up in her head. And the really interesting place I think the story goes with this is that it makes that itself an experience of mental illness. He There's no point in the story where Heather suddenly realizes, oh, I was never crazy, and gets over it. She spent over a decade of her life believing that she was insane and not being able to bring her experiences of reality in line with what everybody told her they should be like. And that is in of itself a form of madness, a form of... Absolutely. And I thought this would be interesting to bring up because there's a lot of things in our society which aren't listed as specific disorders or mental illnesses, um, but which have similar experiences to it because of how you were treated in society for being that way. Um, the obvious one, up until very recently, and still is in many places, is being gay. Yeah. It's, there are a lot of things in this world where your ordinary life experience puts you at odds with the world around you, and that can be disorienting and horrifying and traumatizing and can isolate you and make you feel alone in the way Heather has. And that can have a very similar experience to genuinely having certain forms of mental illness. And it's one thing I think this story does so, so well is that it never undercuts Heather's experience because she wasn't actually crazy. It emphasizes it because of that. And you got to pick something up here because I'm, I'm rambling on and on. I wanted you to talk about this. <laughs> no, I just wanted to make sure you were done. Yeah. It's a really fantastic point. I actually wanted to relate this back mm -hmm. to a, um, an exam question that I had that I actually got wrong on mm -hmm. my um, psych final last year. And I swear this, this I'm leading someone with this. Mm -hmm. So it was about this girl and it was a case study. So like I'm paraphrasing a bit, but the general gist of it was this. It was mm -hmm. about this girl who had had a recent breakup with her girlfriend after she was caught kissing that girlfriend's brother. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously the girlfriend didn't take that well. And she basically, she had a journal of that from that girlfriend and outed her as her parents to a sadist, as a sadist rather, mm -hmm. who basically like took enjoyment from um, hurting other people and went to these BDSM cons, blah, blah, blah. And obviously the parent, the parents decided to take her to some sort of a um, psychiatrist because there was obviously some kind of a um, great distress in her life that like maybe caused her to, um, to kiss this guy, which seemed really out of character for her, blah, blah, blah. Um, and the girl maintained that she had totally normal interests and likes and that she didn't really, that she was managing and that this like was kind of bullshit, but in, in a way that was very like, she was 16 and she said it in, mm. in I hate to say it, but she said it in that way, you know, mm -hmm. um, which is totally valid, but does color your diagnosis. Unfortunately, people are human. They have biases. So basically we were left to make a diagnosis for her. And the diagnosis that I went with was like a slight overemphasis on um, sadism, which could potentially lead to, um, to harming another person when they were not consenting, which is a legitimate issue for some people. Um, but the correct answer was that she had nothing. She did not actually have a diagnosis to make. This was just a one-time error, which basically caused, um, which caused her issues and distress, but was not clinically indicative of some specific pattern. 
and that in giving her a diagnosis, you were pathologizing normal behavior. And I got that question wrong. And I still think about it because like me with all of like, I hate to say it, but like having been in the, in explicitly queer spaces for like the better part of a decade now, still overly pathologize normal queer behavior as a part of seeing a potential intake patient. And that to me tells me all I need to know about just how common this stuff is and how easy it is to get it wrong. Even as we're trying, it's damned difficult. I really hate to say it, but it is. Yeah. And honestly, the sadism angle is almost particularly relevant here because as the story goes on, uh, the queer romance gets into some particularly kinky angle uh, angles, yes. Even if it doesn't show us. <laughs> I hear you pouting about that. Howard. That's what fan fiction is for. Um, um, if there were any fanfic longer than like 8,000 words, then we'll talk. There is, shush you, learn to enjoy one-shots. <laughs> Over my dead body. <laughs> Anyways, though, I think there's something very notable here, which is Catalepsis has a particular audience. Um, and the audience it's really trying to speak to are people who have grappled with mental illness, um, particularly people in the queer kink community. I mean, it appeals to a wide uh, audience. I think anybody who likes Eldritch Horror like, will like this story. But there's a particular audience it's trying to resonate with, and those are people who are familiar with the experience of being pathologized and experiencing the horrors of that, even if they're not unwell in a, how to put this, they may be neurodivergent, they may be, have atypical functioning, uh, they may be outside the norm, but their lives are okay, and the problem is simply the mismatch between that and society. That's, I think, going to be a very common thing among a lot of people to whom catalepsis resonates with most. And it's something which is a deeply explicit part of Heather's experiences here. I actually had a whole section on that. There's oh, um, a quote later on. Mm -hmm. uh, let me find it. Um, Rain's eyes narrowed into a shrewd look. What exactly did you see in Wonderland, Heather? I looked at her for a moment like she was one of my hallucinations. I, I can't talk about it. It hurts to think... Please try, Rain said, then reached across the table and took my hand. Hers felt so warm and soft. I tried to pull away, but she held on. You've never told anybody this, have you? The doctors... But you lied to them a lot, right? You told them the drugs worked, and you never really told them the core of it, not at ten years old. What do you dream about, Heather? Why are you even asking? Because you need it, don't you? I gulped screwed my eyes up, and for the first time in my life, I told the truth. So there's a lot to that. But mm -hmm. what I really wanted to get at is that this unfortunately gets at some of the real deficiencies we still have in this field, that social work and therapy broadly relies on having an open bond of trust and rapport between you and your therapist. Like, if you can't trust them not to judge you or to believe you when you say you're experiencing things, even if those things might not necessarily be like, quote unquote, real, then how can you possibly, how can they possibly expect you to be openly vulnerable with them? Like, ultimately, yeah. it doesn't matter whether a patient is experiencing something that is quote-unquote real or imaginary if the distress they're exhibiting is real, because that's honestly what you treat. 
So like the, if the patient is the expert at their own experience, when they talk, you should listen. Even if you disagree in some way, it's still valuable in understanding where they're coming from. And obviously this specific case is a bit outside of, well, everyone's mm -hmm. specialty, but the fundamentals <laughs> still apply. Like even in this circumstance, Heather might well have benefited greatly from CBT or other anxiety-driven interventions for like the panic attacks that the CPTSD is clearly inducing into her. Mm -hmm. And it, like you said, it covers the pathologization of mental health very well. Often diagnosticians will focus on how a person doesn't fit or causes difficulties to others when making a decision rather than dis the distress that it caused, that is caused to the person themselves. That's how many black children who are rightfully pissed off by a world that fundamentally fails to accommodate them, get slapped with oppositional defiance disorder and a diagnosis which is insidious in its use in this case, because not only does it mask their symptoms for something that is their fault, but the more that they try to express disagreements with the way that their treatment is helping, or in this case, often harming them, the more that that diagnosis is presumed to be accurate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, also, thankfully, this whole pattern has gotten significantly better, at least like insofar as my training goes. There's mm -hmm. been a very clear focus on moving away from pathologization and focusing on treating distress no matter what the mm -hmm. cause is. So like you might be seeing a patient, for instance, that is um, mm -hmm. that is gay and doesn't necessarily have a specific disorder, but is facing severe mm -hmm. homophobia within their workplace. And you would work on CBT-driven interventions for them because they are helping to treat the distress that that situation is causing, even if there's no actual pathologization of a specific condition that the person has, because they don't. Right, right. Actually, extending from this, I just noticed this, but it's interesting to note that Heather first, Heather sees psychiatrists and quote-unquote nebulous doctors, right? Right. And that makes perfect sense. If your kid has a sudden psychotic break in the night, and I mean psychotic in the sense of disconnected from reality and apparently having delusions, right? It honestly sounds like the break might have even been like violent at points because she was so dissociated yeah. that she was hospitalized. Like at seven mm -hmm. years old, I would be very surprised if it wasn't if it wasn't violent, to be frank. Yeah. With that kind and, of trauma. Right. And in this case, take them to a psychiatrist. Medication is probably should be where you are first jumping to in this case, right? This is yeah. definitely something to try medicating, right? This isn't something to go like, oh, well, maybe how about, how about we try a regimen of just doing talk therapy first before we go to the drugs? No, no, no. no you go to you the drugs. You need tranquilizers just <laughs> to get her into a mind state to be able to talk. Right. But the interesting thing is, is that the drugs didn't work. And either through a combination of Heather lying to them because she didn't have the appropriate bond of trust or lying to them because they kept on cycling her medications and the side effects were terrible and it just wasn't working. So she eventually told them it worked just to, you know, get it to stop, get right? It to stop. Yeah. After all that, there wasn't a point where they went hey, the medication isn't working, so let's stop the psychiatric interventions and start psychological ones. Not, or at least run them in tandem. Right. Not because, oh, well, you don't need psychiatric uh, help, right? Obviously, somebody who is 
experiencing distress and hallucinations to this degree has something wrong with their brain chemistry, right? Or would in a normal situation. But the system failed her in that it didn't really go to the point where it was saying, hey, your hallucinations are causing you distress. Let's table trying to resolve the hallucinations for now, or at least put that in the background because it's not working right now. And let's just talk about the distress. How can we help you manage better with the, with the visual reality you have? Yeah, because like what many people <clears throat> tend to forget about hallucinations is that it's not just about like most people with hallucinations. Well, first mm-hmm. I should note um, auditory hallucinations are by far the most common, not mm-hmm. visual ones, which like people always think are more common than they are. They're actually pretty rare. But mm-hmm. most people who have hallucinations do not believe that they are real. They just Mm -hmm. see things and hear things that they know aren't real. But that doesn't automatically eliminate the stress of having those hallucinations. Like, most hallucinations are of the vindictive variety and often of people you know intimately. So, like, yeah, you might know that, like, your grandmother is dead and that's not her voice you're hearing, but that doesn't really take away the trauma of waking up every morning and hearing your like your dead mama who you love who you used to love so much say that you're a sad piece of shit and should jump off a bridge yeah fix that it's um i think i've talked with you about this before but uh twice when i was in college i had visual hallucinations um Mm -hmm. one time just for i think it was just a few uh maybe 15 minutes half an hour another time for several hours um still honestly have no idea what caused them uh i'm gonna say excessive sleep deprivation was probably involved but those weren't the worst sleep deprived times of my life so can't really say for certain (laughs) um (laughs) no drugs um no i said shrug (laughs) yeah um but the thing was i had uh hallucinations actually um more along the catalepsis line of things than uh, auditory hallucinations. They were visual only of very unreal things. Um, I think the one I remember most clearly, the most visually evocative, was um, pitch black spiders crawling across the ceiling, which were as small as a quarter and large enough to swallow up the entire sky at the same time um uh moving from one end of the ceiling to the other in a single step without actually uh the spatial perspective of it was very weird uh yeah it was that kind of thing but at no point did i believe in the hallucinations i wasn't delusional about them i was fully aware i was hallucinating mm-hmm But it was fucking terrifying because I didn't know if this was, is this the moment when I have a schizophrenic break and this is what the rest of my life is like? Didn't turn out to be. I got lucky, but I had no idea. I had no idea when it would end. I had no idea if it would get worse. And that's the thing, which is it did eventually stop. Happened twice, never happened again. For quite a while after, I think I could have benefited from therapy, from discussing the fear around it, from Mm -hmm. uh, just everything about that, right? And that's something catalepsis is very good about. It's 
these shapes Heather's seeing on the sidewalk, if medication could help with them, that would be great. Yeah, but really what she needs is fucking psych like psychological therapy, not psychiatric. <laughs> And the other thing I wanted mm. to note about your particular example is that, mm -hmm. like, it often isn't the fear of, like, oh, these things are real. That's the kicker. It's mm -hmm. if I can't trust my eyes, what can I trust? Did I really mishear that person or did I hear them say something else? Can I trust <sighs> my own memory of what happened? Or was that a dream or something else that I hallucinated? Like, it's, mm -hmm. it's the fundamental disconnect between your experience and what you believe is real. And most people don't have to genuinely question that on a day-to-day -day basis. Oh. It's terrifying. Oh, yeah, man. When my nightmares were at their worst and I was seriously sleep-deprived, uh, this was probably only one of the top five worst things of the experience, but definitely one of the top five was um, often being uncertain whether I had dreamed something or it had really happened. <laughs> and you know to be honest heather's probably sleep deprived enough that that's probably happening to her as well so just like toss that on the pile yeah i mean even in in some of her diction we can see that like we see again and again i can't talk about this i can't do this i can't talk about this it's like a mantra because on some level mm -hmm. like i mean obviously we have the benefit of of um of dramatic irony like where we know things that she doesn't so we can probably infer that oh this is the coping mechanism she developed because mm -hmm. the solution to my sister is gone and was never there is, oh, my sister was never real. That's the thing that allows her not to think about it because, mm -hmm. and, and the thing that allows her to, to some extent, ignore the monsters, because even if they're horrifying, she can keep telling herself that they aren't there. And it's not perfect, but at least it's an explanation that she can contend with. It's a thing that makes the world fit into a narrow box that she can process. The moment that that comes off, then all of the associated trauma, the fact that she left her sister there for 10 years, the fact that these things are behind everyone she sees and she can't tell them, she can't interact with them, but they're, they follow her. She needs to deal with all of that. Of course, she says, I can't talk about this. It's not just that she's parroting the doctors. Mm -hmm. She isn't letting herself consider it. Which comes up to where Rain banishes one of the monsters. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, it's hard to even think about what to say about this, but at this point, Rain texts her friend, gets some kind of ritual symbol on her phone, and promptly banishes one of the creatures that Heather points out to her. And Heather is immediately convinced it's some kind of confidence trick. Look, she... <sighs> Rain... Rain just acted very confidently and was just uh, very straightforward about it, and so her hallucinations uh, matched in line with that, and it's all in her head, and it's still all in her head. It's not real, right? And one thing I think Catalypsis does very well here is it actually does make it kind of unclear. Like, I mean, we're told the monsters are real in the summary, and by Heather's narration, but the way Rain does her proof here isn't perfect. It could just be a confidence trick, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so more than that, Heather mm -hmm. is desperate for it to be because it holds up that limited framework. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, maybe I found a solution that still allows me to keep my box. 
Yeah, and also, more importantly, allows Maisie to not have been captured by outside. <laughs> but Rain doesn't anyway. And for a moment, she kind of breaks Heather's box. And then she tells her, hey, uh, get some sleep, and later today, come see me and my friend at the Medieval Metaphysics Department. <laughs> Which is a ridiculous I'm glad name. You said it first. Yeah, it's still a ridiculous name. <laughs> but this is where the first chapter leaves off. Heather is dealing with all of these issues. She is dealing with madness in a very real and substantial way, despite not actually being schizophrenic. And then Rain cracks the bubble of at least it's not real. And that's where we that's where we're left off at the end of the first chapter. And yeah, what I what I really like is that she she extends that bridge just the tiniest bit. When Heather says, "But my hallucinations are not real," she says, "Sure, they're not, but tell me about them anyway." As if it's mm. just like, and it's just the right bridge of hypothetical to get her to step across. Yeah, and honestly, what's kind of interesting is typical eldritch horror story the hook at the end of the first chapter would be oh, dun 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 like the monsters are real right mm -hmm. but the hook here i mean yeah the monsters are real right right but the hook here is almost or at least we can infer yeah but the hook here is almost more that it's our interest in heather's state of mind we're less interested in at this point in the monsters are real than in how is heather going to feel and experience this continued breakdown of what she thought she was was real mm -hmm. and i mean to be frank i think that's just good writing in general <laughs> um, yeah good writing and not just that but again to um to to bring back the whole like the the common thread through all this is the connections with people we're mm -hmm. also interested in rain because yeah. we're like was it a confidence trick what was she doing with her phone why was that specifically what she did like she oh yeah to be, like there's that naked fascination. There's clearly something going on with her, but we don't know what. Like she said, um, what's it called? You know this city isn't safe for people like you. Ah, uh, who am I kidding? You haven't the faintest idea. And, uh -huh. and then she says, what? You, wait, you mean because I'm crazy? No, Heather. I mean because you can see things you shouldn't. Yeah. And, and the thing is, Primarily, at this point, our interest in Rain is through the lens of Heather's interest in her. Heather gives us this grounding for caring about Rain in a very human way, not just as a plot device, but as this interesting girl who, I mean, you said it in the intro, girls. <laughs> you are not immune to Pretty Butch. <laughs> I am not immune to Pretty Butch, I'll admit it. No one is. Ah. But. Yeah, that's where the first chapter wraps up, and we have spent plenty of time on this, more than we intended to already, so... And we cut, like, <laughs> half of our content. <laughs> yep. Uh, more to come, I'm sure. We'll yeah. put it in somewhere. So, first, though, um, is there anything you missed uh, which you particularly want to get, uh, like, just get out there real quick before we move into the wrap-up phase? Um, let's see, we covered... Oh yeah, the the one the one note I wanted to put. This is more just me being a nerd. Um, Rain mentions um, schizophrenic, um, or rather, um, paranoid schizophrenia. 
oh, yeah. earlier. She says, yeah, but people like you are supposed to be deluded, right? You won't believe any of the stuff you see is real, or at least that's the impression I get. You, you're not technically paranoid schizophrenic. That's not the diagnosis they ever gave you, is it? I'm willing to bet they tried real hard to put you in that category, but they couldn't find enough markers because you don't believe it's real. So I just wanted to note that like the, um, as of March, 2022, there was a recent text revision let out by the DSM-5, which basically notes that um, schizophrenia is no longer divided into the five clinical subtypes just because it was no longer clinically significant for the difference. Like some clinicians, I think, will specifically put um, like different um, categories in like the the affect that the people take towards schizophrenia, but it's no longer a diagnostic code for reference for insurance. And yeah. I'm saying all this nerdy stuff just to like go to show that like this stuff is constantly evolving and that like that is that was absolutely the case when this text was written and that that just goes to show that like this field is constantly changing and stuff and i just think that's really cool yeah yeah um i think if i had one thing i had to skip over which i wanted to talk about which is um this is my one gripe of the chapter i i but i hate to say it i fully refuse to believe that there is a 24-hour breakfast cafe with greasy tables dirty floors and incredible food and that students don't go there much within walking distance of the university. That is bullshit. This is 5.30 in the morning. It should be packed to the brim with people coming off all-nighters. Like, it mentions at some point that, like, uh, like, oh, a lot of the snooty trouser types on campus won't come to places like this. No, bullshit. I ref there is no possible way that UK colleges are that class stratified. I mean, maybe this is a US perspective, but no, no, it's just... I mean, okay, look, it, it is a good narrative purpose of hinting that themes of social conflict will be present in the story and that class uh, uh, conflict is going to be an important thing later on. But you, no, moving past that, no, no, I refuse to believe there are not students who are constantly in this cafe. And also, also, it's 530 in the morning. There's got to be a cozy population of elderly regulars, like a lot of them. I have been, I have been to 24-hour breakfast cafes before at 530 in the morning. There's always elderly regulars. <laughs> Maybe it gives everyone indigestion immediately afterwards. Maybe Heather wasn't slipping at all. She just had a really bad stomach. <laughs> Anyways, my one gripe, Aardvark. It, uh, the Aardvark, the 24-hour breakfast cafe in the first chapter. It deserves more love. It was not given what it deserved. <laughs> oh, my God. Fix uh, it for the ebook release. <laughs> uh, um, actually, I think there is an audiobook release coming up pretty soon. Yeah, I thought so as well. Yeah. Uh, we should actually probably look oh, into stuff like that. Oh, just casually plugging that. Whatever release comes in the future, go buy it. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. I fully intend to have this book on my shelf. <laughs> um, so, yeah, what do you want to do to wrap up? <laughs> um, That should just be about everything. We should probably cover housekeeping stuff like the, I mean, well, we've kind of way overshot it, but the general episode length, schedule. That kind oh, of yeah. So, Hopefully, future episodes should be shorter than this. Um, we're not going to be able to tearing, be tearing everything down in this amount of exquisite detail. First chapter is special. We're not 100% sure. Yeah, we needed to do a lot of setup. Yeah, sure. We're not 100% sure how many chapters we're going to be doing per episode in the future. Probably somewhere around two or three, but take it with a grain of salt. It's going to vary depending on subject content. Yeah, and we're going to try to keep things under an hour in the future, if we can. Fingers um, crossed. <laughs> yeah, I'm jinxing us right now. Um, 
with that said, uh, the art for uh, our icon is um, by Noctilla at noctilla.art. Um, and the intro and the outro music is Celestial Experiments by Tyler River. Um, any other housekeeping stuff? No, I think with that said, um, enjoy your weekend. Hopefully we'll be provided that this, this experiment survives. We'll be back <laughs> next week with talking about the um, medieval metaphysics department, more girls and crazy abominations from debatably outer space. And most importantly, more girls. <laughs> that was already mentioned. Excuse you. <laughs> it's important enough to mention twice. All right. Well, everybody, enjoy your weekend or whenever you're watching this. And dang it, we don't have a snaz snazzy outro comment, do we? <laughs> We're watching you. <laughs>